Well, happy Father's Day to all our dads, and uh, especially the senior men here that represent for me uh, the leadership in my life, and, and uh, you're like my replacement father. I appreciate all of y'all very much for being here and uh, helping me through all of my life stuff. So we're going to just talk very simply today. If you look at your handout, I made it for the men. It's only got like four blanks, so... Um, I watch I watch the men in our congregation not fill out handouts all the time, so I'm smart enough to know who's filling those things out. So OCD people and the women are filling them out. So, so this is a man's handout. Got like four blanks, and you don't care if you fill those out either, do you? So, uh, but I really want to just uh, you know, they did a little study. Um, several several of the uh, stronger churches have done some studies about Father's Day about why men don't come to church on Father's Day because they don't want to. And it's their day. It's Dad's day. So they don't want to come to church. And uh, so they've started doing, trying to do things to help them not come to church. And they have what's called guilt-free Sunday. <laughs> uh, so, so you can preach a sermon that doesn't bring any guilt into a dad's life. Because dads are like, why would I go hear a sermon about great dads and feel really like a jerk after that? Like I'm not a good dad. I thought, well, that makes good sense. We shouldn't really preach about great dads on Father's Day. We should preach about something else. Um, but I thought I'd, lo- I'd, I'd share with you. Uh, just four truths that I've learned as a father. All my life, I've had some great jobs. Um, God's just given me a, a chance to, to do some great things. When I was in high school, I worked for uh, J.H. Wright and Associates, where my older brother worked, and uh, I swept the shop and did all kinds of stuff there. Um, but it turned out to be a really amazing thing. When I was 17 years old, I was managing. My brother uh, moved on to another company, and so they, they moved me up into management of a warehouse uh, with millions of dollars worth of stuff that shipped all over the United, the world. Uh, we shipped stuff to Europe and all over the place, big pumps and motors and all kinds of stuff. And I had to manage our parts inventory and manage all the the stuff, and I had to learn how to weld to make some of that. Some, some of the stuff we sent out, we tacked together ourselves and had them finish it. And So I had all this stuff I had to learn, and part of the great part of that job for me, although it was a little bit hot and miserable some days, was that I got to learn a lot of different stuff and uh, experience a lot of different things. When I went into when I went to college uh, in Birmingham, I, I um, started working uh, as a janitor cleaning churches. Imagine that! Um, so I'm the guy that can I can pull some trash cans and set up some tables like nobody's business, and uh, did, did it all my life. I did that all through college, and uh, for years later, I'd help a couple of large churches. They'd always hire some guys on the side to come in on weekends and set their stuff up and get their classes ready and all that. And it was always just good side money. I painted for a while with a professional, really, really old-fashioned painter that would not go into the spray equipment at all. He had to do rollers and brushes, and uh, he wasn't ever going to get to that fancy spray stuff. And uh, so we painted we painted uh, all these big houses downtown Birmingham, 40-foot ladder, climb a ladder, paint as far as you can reach, go down, move the ladder, climb the ladder, paint as far as you can reach, go down. I mean, I did that for years with him. And I uh, had a great time. He, he was just a great mentor to me. He was a, a full-time painter, but he used his income to help support small churches that needed pastors. He would say, I'll, go, I'll be your pastor for free until you can get one. So he was an interim pastor and uh, just a sweet old man, loved the Lord, and uh, just it was an honor to work with him. Probably the, and, then, and then, of course, uh, full-time at a couple of churches in Birmingham, and full-time here since 2000, and 2000 <laughs> since March of 2000. So, um, and this is probably my favorite of all job I've ever had right here, um, Northside Bible Church. It just doesn't get any better than this except for one thing, and that's the job I have of being a father. 
because um, that's the coolest thing in the world, um, to be a dad. Um, so my first lesson that I want to just share with you this morning is that there is a deep, there's a deeper love when you become a father. I remember uh, when I fell in love with my most beautiful wife, um, thinking, you know, my heart's going to pound out of my chest sometimes when she's around, um, just getting literally cotton-mouthed and tongue-tied and saying really stupid stuff or just being really dorky around her because I was so freaked out by, you know, who she was and the, the magnitude of who she represented in my life. And, and so as I fell in love with her, there was nothing going to top that. Okay, now I will tell you the first time I ever told her I loved her, she said she liked me back. So that went really well. Nearly committed suicide that night. You'd have a different guy altogether if it wasn't for that. Some people pulled me out of the depths of despair in the dorm room that night because I was like, I have ruined it all. I've blown it. And, uh, but, but God really had to do work in her to get her to just tolerate me long enough to get married. So, so I'm praising God for the grace that goes with that. And, uh, but, but I will tell you, we stood at this altar 30-plus uh, years ago. We stood right here on the orange carpet and uh, said our vows to one another and made commitments. And um, the day, that day... That day, uh, my, you know, my love was just overflowing. I couldn't believe how much I loved this one person. Um, I loved my mama, you know, and she loved me back. Loved my father and my brothers, but there was this like elevated place that I came to um, that I that I loved her. That was beyond everything. I mean, I would sacrifice anything for her. And uh, as we were coming back from, uh, we, we left our, we left here to go to our honeymoon in Destin, Florida, and then we ended up in. Birmingham at a little house, little house that the church that I was working in there owned. They were letting us move in as youth leaders there. We moved into that house, and most of our furniture was down here. Um, so I loaded up in the Mustang, she and I, six days. We'd been married six days. And we start coming down I-65, familiar room, just going to come straight down 65, go to my mom's house. Got some friends meeting us with trucks and trailers going to follow us back up. And uh, Somewhere, and it was late afternoon on a Sunday afternoon. We'd skip. We told the church we'd be a Sunday night church, um, and we'd skipped uh, skipped church to come. And late afternoon, it's getting dark. We stopped in Montgomery. This is I tell you how long ago it was. We stopped in Montgomery to get on a payphone and call Mama and tell her how what, where our schedule, where we were in the schedule, how how long before we get home. So I got on a payphone, called her, got back in the Mustang with Net, and as we we're coming down the road. She reached over and grabbed me with an, an iron-clenched death grip on my arm. Just caught me on the console there and grabbed my arm, and she said, if you don't get me to a hospital right now, I'm going to die. We're, we're on I-65, just 20 minutes north of Bruton, which is nothing, nothing up there. And, I, and of course, I don't know anything about anything up there anyway. So, you know, there's not a big sign that says hospital this way, you know. There's no cell phones or nothing, and I'm, I mean, my heart is racing. You know, my most true love ever, six days into our marriage, is dying, and I'm like, ah. So I'm freaking out, and uh, man, we just put that thing in the wind and skidded off at the next intersection or at the next uh, ramp, and there was a shell station that was closing. The lights were going off as we pulled into it, and uh, the I know it freaked out the old man in the building because, I mean, I skidded into the driveway and ran up there and started banging on the glass and said, hey, i got to know where near this hospital is. My wife, something's wrong with her. I don't know what's happening. You know, I was all panicked, and, and he said, well, you can go back on the interstate and go 40 miles back, back up to Montgomery, or... Uh, you could just go down this road here, and there's a big old tree, and then you turn at the dirt road and follow this dirt road, and it'll take you right to the back door of uh, Lurleen B. Wallace Hospital. I said, how big is that tree? 
tell me about the tree. And he described the tree, and I said, I can do that, because he said, you're on about 15 minutes from there. So, uh, man, we just flew in there, and I ran over a curb and freaked out a security guard at the place and got her in there and found out she was having some uh, kidney problems. And, and, uh, but it scared me to death. I called Mama from the hospital. I said, I think my wife's going to die. I don't know what's happening. I love her so much. What's happening, Mama? I mean, I was all upset. But, so there was this enormous love. Well, I had a neighbor. We lived in uh, Birmingham and several little out towns of Birmingham for a number of years, renting houses. And uh, we rented a house in a place called Lipscomb, Alabama. And you have to look it up on a map sometimes. Pretty funny little place. There was a man that lived across the street from us. I've talked about him before. He's a little bit like Robert Cochran to us. Um, he sort of adopted us. Here's this new little family on the block. And, you know, wife's pregnant. And the husband's an idiot. So he need, they need help. And uh, so, so he kind of adopted us and started loving on us. And he'd invite us over. And, you know, they'd give us all their garden vegetables. And he'd show me how to make a garden. And we'd make garden at his yard and my yard. And, and uh, we just kind of helped each other out. He was all, anytime he's going to the store, let me take you with me, let's go to the store. And, you know, just get in the car with me, he'd just start talking, just give me wisdom. It was, it was wonderful to be around him. And uh, he started telling me as the baby was becoming closer to time to be born, he started telling me, now, there's nothing like the love you're going to feel for your son. I was like, there ain't no way it's going to top what I've been through with my wife. There's just no way. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. You know, I mean, there's, there's a level of love that men can feel, and that's the... You know, your wife's right there. That's it, right? Well, I'm telling you, in the hospital, when they put that baby, Joshua, which took 40 hours to come out, by the way, which freaked us all out, but when they finally put that baby in my arms, there was that moment in life where you go, okay, we're at a whole new level. I mean, an absolute whole new level of love. And nothing, nothing compares. As I was holding him and realizing... You know, he is my DNA, and he belongs to my wife and I, and I'm in charge. Nothing's going to harm him. I mean, every time he whimpered and cried, I'm that guy. I was that dad going, why is my son crying? Y'all got to get You know, I'm just all freaked out going, don't let him. Why y'all stretch him out and measure him like that? Can't you just take curvy measurements and figure out how tall he is? You ain't got to stretch him out and make him cry like that. You know, I'm having all these. But he, my love for him, and then, you know, oh, you know, then I loved Caleb too, some. And then, uh, then Mary... <laughs> Then Mary came along and was like, wow, we got a girl, yeah. So, but I'm just, I'm just saying there was, this, there was this really amazing thing I had to learn as a dad that there is a deeper love that a father has for a child like nothing else, like nothing else. And it's a very special love. Um, so in Ephesians chapter 3, I want you to look at this with me in your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul is saying a prayer. In the first chapter of Ephesians, he says a prayer that's very similar to this. And then he expands on a little bit in chapter 3 and says, here's another way I'm praying for you as Ephesians. And I think in Larry's Sunday school class, y'all studied Ephesians for a while. So you can, you can recognize some of this. For, for this reason, Paul says, Ephesians 3.14, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp. Here's what Paul says. I want you to know how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. See, there's a deeper love 
that a father has for a son. And Paul's saying, you know, as Christians to the Ephesians, he's saying, I know you're growing in your faith. He actually tells them along the way, you understand a lot of great things. You're growing in your faith. You Ephesians 2, you're saved by grace. You're not, you're not saved by works. I know you get all that. But then he says, look, here's what I'm praying for you. And by the way, I use this prayer pattern in Ephesians 3 to pray over our church list all the time. I pray your name and these words. And I'd encourage you to do the same. Pray for your church family and pray for your family these words. I want you to, I want you to know how high how deep, how wide, how long the love of Christ is. There is no end to understanding the love of Christ. One of the things that happened at our camp this week, um, I preached the first four or five lessons. There's ten lessons altogether that I have to do. And uh, I preached the first four or five on uh, sin and drawing us to the fact that we are just terrible, rotten, no good, goober. Remember? We're goober sinners. I mean, we're just bad at it. Bad people, and there's a lot of sin in us. Even as Christians, we have a lot of little unknown sins in us. Um, and, and there's there's thought sins that happen all the time in our in our minds. We think things that we shouldn't think, um, and and it it violates God's standards. But He still, we took the last part of the week and said, no matter how much you sin, He still reaches out and chases you down and loves you. You'll hear some of that. We're going to do the same series I did at camp. It's going to show up next, starting next week here in the pulpit. So. We'll continue in the book of Jonah. If you remember, we started in Jonah last week. We'll come back to that. But just, just a good thing to know is that there is a depth of a love of our Heavenly Father that you'll never find the bottom of. There's a height you'll never find the height of. And you should pursue it. You should say, God, I want to know how much you really love me. That's a great, great challenge to offer to God. Show me how much you really love me. Because once you get stable in that love... Here's the thing. Once somebody is truly stabilized by the love of God, you know you can't shake his love, that there's nothing that will shake his love off of you, you're free. You're free to serve. You're free to follow. And you can't wait to do good things to bless him and honor him. You can't wait to do that. So, so I learned as a father <laughs> that there's a deeper love that matches the one in the scriptures. And because of that deeper love that's almost unexplainable, the second truth is I can find interest in things of others that are not my own interest. I can find interest in things of others that are not my own interest. Listen to Philippians 4 and verse 2. It's going to be here on the screen. Don't look out only for yourselves, Paul tells the Philippians, but take an interest in others. Take an interest in others. When you become a dad, you know, my children didn't like just the things I liked. They liked other weird things in life. And I had to learn to like those things. I remember when, uh, <laughs> when Caleb took cross country. All my life growing up, I played sports, and running was the bad thing we had to do in all our sports. When we'd go out to the field, the coach would go, all right, I want you all to take three laps. I'm like, three, coach, come on, three laps. And if you complain, you go, four, you know, four. Who complained out loud, you know? So now we're running four laps. Like it's, it's like torture for us. You know, then we do the calisthenics and all that, and then we play ball. And, and, uh, and then when practice was over, if we were bad, you know what the coach would do? Hey. I didn't like the way y'all were mouthing off that. I didn't like y'all weren't paying attention. So give me four more laps before you go in. We're being punished for running. Then my son goes to a sport where you run for fun. I mean, the whole point of the sport is to run. And actually, this is what really used to freak me out. Because, you know, I had to learn about cross country. I had to go to his meets and figure all that stuff out. It's weird to go to a track meet that's cross country, by the way. Because there's a starting line and a finishing line. It's the same place, theoretically. <laughs> a couple of them weren't. <laughs> and... Uh, but you, you, you watch your kids leave, and then they're just gone for, like, forever. 
And you stand around and talk to parents, yeah, it's good, it's good. You're not really watching any competition at all. And then eventually, people, kids one at a time start coming by because there's one kid really, really fast in the state, you know, and he just can outrun everybody. So he shows up, and then you know, hey, it's time for everybody else to start eventually trickling in. And then when he comes in, he's go, hey, good job. Like, I'm sure there was competition in there somewhere out there in the woods where y'all running and streets and stuff. We just never saw it. It had to be cool, though. That was cool. You know, it's like... Because I'm watching him, you know, I watch my son run away, and I watch him run back, and I go, that's a sport. How about that? Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> well, then the coach would get them all together and say, hey, good job. Y'all did good today. You know, we came in, you know, ninth, 12th, and 200th, or whatever we did. Good job. And then he'd say, all right, before we go home, we're going to, uh, let's go run three miles to cool down. I'm like, what are y'all doing? Why would you run three miles to cool down? You can cool down sitting in the car, Right? <laughs> So cross-country made no sense to me at all. But my son, really because of some youth pastors here that were just nuts and got him into it, you know, fell in love with cross-country. And he used to just run for fun, just run. And uh, so I had to learn. I had to get involved. Um, Joshua and uh, Caleb's wife, Ashley, uh, my sweet um, daughter-in-law, they're into journalism and writing. So I have to read a lot more than I would want to read. Um, I have to learn the stuff that they're learning, and I had to be interested in journalistic things as Josh was going through school. You know, I got all plugged into that. So it's interesting as a father, sometimes you have to, you have to figure out what your kids are interested in, and you have to make that your interest. See, I think God does that with us. I think God reaches into our lives and takes care of our interests so that we're helpful. Paul challenges us in Philippians 2, don't just be interested in your stuff. That's just, it actually says in the text, it's just horribly selfish, horribly selfish. And so as a father, you learn to be interested in others, right? Um, The third thing, and it kind of goes along with that as well, that I learned is that sacrificing um, for those I love is a joy, not a labor. It's a joy to sacrifice for those I love. Every dad here understands what it means to, to sacrifice, And I'm going to show you a little video here in just a second. Philippians 2, verse 14 says, Do everything without complaining or arguing. Now, I'm going to read you a longer passage because I want you to catch a hold of this. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Then you will be innocent and without any wrong. You will be God's children without fault. But you are living with a crooked and mean people all around you. The world is all around you is different. Among whom you shine like stars in the darkness. And I'm just going to ask you as a conviction question this morning on the non-guilt Sunday. You know, are you shining your faith out in, the, in this dark world? Verse 16. You offer the teachings that give life. So when Christ comes again, I can be happy because my work was not wasted, Paul says. I ran the race and won. Your faith, Paul talking to Philippians, your faith makes you offer your lives as sacrifice in serving God. If I have to offer my own blood with your sacrifice, I will be happy and full of joy with all of you. Paul says, if I have to give blood to make your faith life work, that's what I'll do. I'm willing to sacrifice. He actually says, you should also be happy and full of joy with me. It brings joy to Paul to make sacrifices. Um, the, The week of camp that we just spent... You know, it's a, it's a big sacrifice for the adults that went on that trip. Um, I can tell you that I think the most sleep I got was the first night there was about four hours and 20 minutes. And it was the first night in the new place, so you're tossing and turning for a big part of that. I don't know how much of that I tossed and turned, but it was a lot. Um, so four hours is real generous. But the rest of the week, 
We just have to stay up late and get everything ready for the next day, and we have to plan, and, and the adults sit around and talk about what did we do different, and what, you know, how did this go, and how are these kids doing it? You know, somebody needs to talk to these kids about this, and we just all spend a lot of energy and time making enormous sacrifice. And I, it's funny because people from back home you know, are calling and going, man, I wish I could go to camp and just get all that break and fresh air. And, you know, fresh air is 102, by the way, in Roberta, Georgia. It's 102 two days in a row. You know, there wasn't any fresh air. There was just humidity like crazy. And, uh, but I just wish I could get a break like that. And I'm like, yeah, you come break with us. It's fun. Come on, help us. It'd be awesome to have you up here, you know. But I, and, and all the ladies running the kitchen up there, they're doing all this work. It's enormous sacrifice to make camp work right um, for those kids. And yet, at the end of the week, you watch 45, 55 students leave their pews almost like you shot a gun off in the room. They leave their pews, they hit their knees on a concrete floor and hold a cross and bow before an altar and beg God to love them, uh, to, to let their love, His love be clear in them and their sins be confessed and then walk by faith the rest of their days. You watch all that happen and you just stand, on that last night I just stand back and like Justin, I just squall. I go, God, how in the world do you use this little place and this very countryfied, goofy, broken little man, you know, that's never been, you know, I'm a, third, I'm a C student all my life, you know, not real smart, clearly not good looking like Blake, you know, I'm just not as good looking as Blake. So, um, but here's the challenge for me is God does these amazing things and he anoints all of that. And Paul says, I would sacrifice anything. Well, I can tell you as a father. You know, when Josh went through his, his times of seizures, um, you know, I, I mean, I would have literally given a lung, a heart. I'd have given my heart up for him to live. Been okay. You know, I just didn't want him to have to, have to go through all of that. And, and you're willing to do anything. The context for Paul, he's telling the church family that, by the way, as church family, we should sacrifice for one another. You should make sacrifices to one another and make sure everybody in the church is taken care of. Um, I shared on Mother's Day that mothers make thousands of unnoticed sacrifices for their children in a week's time. Um, and fathers do as well. Good fathers do the exact same. Thankful for my father. He made many, many sacrifices for us. We remember, my brother and I remember him driving that 57 Ford. Oh, my Lord. Um, Mom's driving a real nice Buick. And uh, Dad's driving this 57 Ford all the way into the late 70s. Um, and it wasn't, it didn't really mean to survive that long, but he just kept it alive, crashed indoor, thanks to somebody that's sitting in the congregation. We won't point fingers, Kathy. Um, so, uh, crashed in passenger door. Uh, but it just, it just, he just didn't need another vehicle. And he wanted us all to have what we needed and wanted us to be in good schools and that kind of thing. So, um, I've just learned as a father that sacrificing for those I love is not labor. It's a joy. I get very discouraged when I hear parents um, talk about, especially when they use it as a weapon against their children, um, to talk about how hard we work for you. Do you know how hard we work for you? And uh, it's really a joy to work for children um, when you love them. So uh, just keep that in mind. And then the last one I want to share with you this morning, there's a great joy in having my children walk in the ways of God. Um, I'm just blessed as a father. There's nothing special about me. Um, I've talked to so many parents who, who raised their kids in good, godly homes, and their kids uh, sort of did the prodigal run, and they're out sowing their wild oats at this point, and uh, it's very discouraging to them. And so I don't have any answers to what makes a home perfect, 
But I just know that Third uh, John 2, John the Beloved, one of my favorite guys in the New Testament, says, Dear friends, I hope all is well with you when you are as healthy uh, and that you are as healthy in body as you are strong in spirit. Some of the traveling teachers recently returned and made me very happy. Uh, John was on the Isle of Patmos, by the way. Made me very happy by telling me about your faithfulness, that you are living according to the truth. I could have no greater joy than to hear that my children are following the truth. And uh, I'm telling you, it is the greatest joy in the world to hear your kids are following the truth. There's a Phillips, Craig, and Dean song. Um, says The chorus says, I want to be just like you, Father singing to Jesus, um, because he, my son, wants to be just like me. I want to be a holy example for his innocent eyes to see. And uh, the truth is, we need to be, as fathers, just like Jesus. And that's a high calling, uh, but we need to set that example um, so that the kids following us can follow Christ. Uh, I remember the first time Mary ever sang uh, in one of my college ministry groups in Birmingham. She was just a little bitty girl sitting on a stool. And uh, I, meant, I meant to load that picture, but I didn't. Um, but I think it's on her Facebook page somewhere way back. She's shaking her head. But she's as cute as she can be, singing. I'm sitting up holding the guitar. And the only way she could sing in front of whether we had about 75 college students crammed in a room that was made for 30. And uh, it was really bad, really bad little room. Um, so so the, the people on the front row are literally, you can, I can reach out and touch them while I'm sitting on a stool singing because um, we had to get so many chairs in there. And uh, she couldn't sing facing them. She had to sing looking at her dad, and, uh, which made it all the more precious for me because we just turned and faced each other and sang the song to each other, more precious than silver, and listened to our hearts as you've heard us do before. But I remember thinking, you know, that night, here's my daughter um, singing a song for God. I mean, she loves to sing, and she's singing a song for God that's going to absolutely bless these college kids uh, forever and ever. They're going to be blessed by that. And uh, over the years, listening to her sing and watching her sing has just been a blessing. And um, her, her heart for the mission field, when we go to mission, she's mad that we haven't been to the to Dominican Republic the last couple of years, and she wants to figure out a way to do that. And, and uh, we may be able to figure something out for this fall or something. But God's really um, ministered to me through my children seeking to serve God. To uh, I've told so many people I'm the most spoiled pastor I've ever um, been in my life now because I get to sit and play music with my sons to God every single Sunday. Uh, my sons and I sit and play music together. And I mean, you talk about spoiled me. That's spoiled. That is just an awesome thing. Um, I remember the first time Josh and Caleb ever played in a group of worship uh, of worship team with me and that I was just bouncing off the walls that night when it was all over. I was like, I can't believe we did that. It was awesome. And uh, so just real encouraged. Um, there's Paul or John says there's no greater joy than to know your children are walking in the truth. Now Brandon's got some little children that he's going to help raise, but, but all of us as spiritual leaders and as uh, Christian men and women, we have spiritual children that should be in our wake. So the thing I want to challenge you with this morning as we close is who are the children, the spiritual children behind you? See, you know, Justin led this little boy to uh, Christ at camp, um, and it's his spiritual son now. It's his spiritual son in the faith. And uh, I went up, uh, one of the kids in our church had, one of the days at camp, I'd ask everybody to take a sticky note when they came in, 
I said, I want you to write the name of somebody that you know that's unsaved, that's your personal friend or family. Write their name. You don't put your name, just their name, and put their name on the, on the wall. And it was a wall where several of us would go and just stand and pray over those names. Uh, well, I, the little boy that got saved, his name was on that wall. And so I went and found it after Justin led him to Christ and handed it to him. That was one of those days where he just couldn't quit crying. And I'm like, it's just a sticky note, man. He's like, no, you don't understand. But it, it was amazing to him that God had used him to, to lead that young man to Christ. Well, he's his spiritual father now. Uh, Justin has a son in the faith um, that he led to Christ at camp, and he is responsible. He still has a sticky note. I told him, put it in the front of your Bible, and don't ever move it out of there. So I, I have a bunch of sticky notes in my Bible from the camp people I've ministered to. So, but the truth is, you, have, you should have spiritual children in your wake. You young people from camp, you should be leading the young people of our church to Christ. You should find ways to lead people to Christ. Um, tell them the gospel. Get them saved. All of us as parents definitely should have witness to our own children and family. But then you, ha- you should have a, 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 a bunch of people behind you. I started to say a herd. <laughs> a bunch of people behind you um, that, that are following you because you're following Christ. Um, and that's when John says, man, there's nothing better than to see the people that you're walking with and leading walking in the truth. There's nothing better than that. And I'm telling you, it is the highest joy in the world. Um, there, there was a spiritual high at camp this last week um, like I've never experienced. I have never experienced the moving of the Holy Spirit um, like the last two nights of our camp. Uh, never experienced in my life. The second song of worship. The first song was a... I guess y'all call that a mosh pit. But anyway, first song was God's Great Dance Floor, uh, which is a famous uh, Tom, Chris Tomlin song on the radio. And, uh, and the band that was leading, Drawing from Heaven, some good, good friends of ours, godly young men, um, said, hey, y'all just get out of your pews and come up front and get here in the opening thing. And uh, when we get to the God's Great Dance Floor part, y'all just jump up and down all you want. And so there's all this energy happening. We actually had several guys that were overheated in our chapel that couldn't keep up with 102. Uh, we had to take them out, but... But it was, an, it was a, an energy song that just built up the energy. So it really didn't have that spiritual tone. I'm getting ready to preach on the cross. You know, three songs later, i got to preach on the cross. And I'm standing in the back, graduate dance floor. I can't, if I jump up and down, I'll be thrown up, so I'm not going to do that. So, so I'm just standing there praising God, enjoying watching the youth be energized by, you know, the joy that's in their heart. They go back to their pews, and the second song starts. And uh, there was just this movement of the Holy Spirit across that room. When the second worship song started, what was the song, Brandon? You remember? I will remain. I will remain. That's right. Yes, their song they wrote, and uh, as they started singing that, there was just this movement. And we have a, a wooden cross that's at every chapel um, Thursday night chapel. I have a wooden cross that the students are allowed to hold. I usually get the seniors to come up and hold it first when I start teaching. Well, one of the students in the room saw the cross up front during the second song, and uh, just went up and got it and put his arms around it like this. And this, this, this year's cross is a little bit taller than the other ones. And so when he just put his arms around it and held on to it 45 minutes, he clung to that cross and wept while the song I Will Remain and the other songs and my sermon started. Um, and people began to join him. People went down to the front and just knelt and prayed while the songs were going. And I mean, the Holy Spirit just washed into that room and I I just was overjoyed at how that happened, and our youth were very much a part of that. Um, there was just a sense of 
uh, peace and joy. And we, we knew at the end of that night, we knew how much God loved us. Um, because God paid for our sins. We should have been the ones that died on the cross. We should have been the ones, we talked about a death camp. We should have been the ones in a death camp. And God came to that death camp and said, don't put him in there. Pick me. Pick me. I'll die in his place. And uh, that sense of God's love overwhelmed us. Um, and so John writes to us and says, there's no greater joy than though your children walk in the Lord. I want to say to you as a church, um, for us to keep raising up these kids in faith, it's going to cost you some time and some sacrifice. Like I said in the notes, it's going to cost you some money to raise your kids in the faith. Um, and we're going to have to find a way to just keep honoring God by raising up these kids. Amen? Amen. Let me ask you to bow your heads to all our dads. Happy Father's Day to you one more time.